This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Hemingway, Eichmann, Stranger in a Strange Land, Dylan, Berlin, Bay of Pigs Invasion, Lawrence of Arabia, British Beatlemania, Ole Miss, John Glenn, Liston Beats, Patterson, Pope Paul, Malcolm X, British Politician Sex, JFK, Blown Away, What else do I have to say? Nothing after that. Hello again, and welcome to episode 96 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that recklessly adopts Billy Joel's hit song as our marching orders to the biggest headlines, heroes, and villains of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. I am Tom Fordyce. Oh, Tom, how did we get to where we are today? Billy thinks it might have something to do with JFK blown away. I think, Katie, he's almost certainly right, isn't he? This feels like... One, if you take out the global wars that dominated the 20th century, this feels like one of the epoch-defining events in the century. I was a small, squishy child when JFK was blown away. I was probably about one. And some years after that, I was living with my family in West Berlin. My dad was stationed there uh, working for the U.S. Air Force. And I recall watching television. I don't really remember that much about television in the mid-60s, aside from watching The Monkees. But (laughs) something that made a huge impression on me was, it must have been the anniversary of the assassination and there was a montage of John F. Kennedy set to very sentimental sad music and I would have been about I don't know four or five years old I remember watching this thing and sobbing just crying bawling my eyes out didn't know who the man was was obviously manipulated by the editor putting together those images of a very handsome young man and the syrupy music it worked on me so that was my first exposure to the whole situation Ah, well, I think I came to it slightly tangentially through the Oliver Stone film, JFK, which came out in the early 90s, so I would have been 17, 18 when I watched that. It is peak Costner, that sort of era where Costner is everywhere. You can't miss Costner. You go at the cinema, Costner's in at least two massive pictures. And like all Oliver Stone films, it is massively paranoid and full of conspiracies. (laughs) And this, Katie, is a topic rife with conspiracy. Yes, it is. And to help steer our way through this topic, I'm delighted to say, Katie, we are joined once again by Dr. Dr. Stephen Wilkinson, the director of the International Institute for the Study of Cuba at the University of Buckingham. He was, of course, our guest for Castro and Bay of Pigs, and he's returned to help us through JFK Blown Away. Welcome, Stephen. Hi. Hi, guys. Hi. I would like to know, first of all, you shared or began to share a little story with us before we began recording today about the moment where JFK was assassinated and it began to impact your young life. Yeah, because I was just turned seven, 1963, and so I remember it. You know, everybody says it was, you know, around at the time. Where were you when Kennedy was killed? Because everybody can remember. It's one of those moments like 9-11, you know? And uh, I remember it really well because my mother dropped the teapot. She was walking into the lounge with tea, and it came on the news, because that's one of the things about this thing as well. It was televised. I mean, the killing of uh, Oswald himself was actually live on telly, you know? Oh, yeah. And my mother just screamed and dropped the teapot <gasps> smashed on the floor and it was like a big moment and it was like what the hell's going on you know because yeah. I, I didn't really realize and she was in sobbing in tears because she was a devout catholic and kennedy was a 
a hero. And so what was the lay of the land previous to the assassination in John F. Kennedy's America and in his presidency? How are people feeling about him? Well, this is really something. I mean, one of the reasons why there is this big conspiracy theory is that there were so many people who wanted him gone. You know, uh, the mafia uh, hated him because his brother Robert was really hitting them hard as attorney general. The Cuban exiles hated him because he betrayed them over the Bay of Pigs. There were people in the military industrial complex that were nervous about him because he was talking about making friends with the Russians. Even the banks have been involved in, you know, having a motive to, mm. to, to want him gone. But at the same time, he was this kind of like first time TV star, movie star type president with his beautiful wife. People, you know, warmed to him and he'd had this success dealing diplomatically with the missile crisis. So he'd recovered a great deal of popularity. Actually, on the day, he was in Dallas to kick off his bid for the presidency. He was coming up for re-election, second term. He was on a like um, a five city tour. And Dallas was one of the stops. Mm. And what he was doing was drumming up support for what was called the New Frontier policies. Of course, the New Frontier relates to the space race, but also it was kind of like a slogan that was coming up for the mm. re-election. Right. Was there any thought at all, as he was put in an open-top limousine, that there might be any danger whatsoever? It's one of these things, Katie, isn't it? Because we're so familiar with the story and what happened next, that it's the thing that your eye alights upon at the start. Yeah. So apparently, he was offered an armoured car, but he elected not to have it. And had he chosen it, then it's likely that there wouldn't have been fatal shots fired because they would have hit the glass that would have surrounded him. And the other thing is, of course, that at that time, the security detail wasn't as big as it is now. Subsequently to that, of course, they beefed up the security around the president. The president doesn't go anywhere without, like, teams of thousands. Yeah. Also, the fact that the, the route that the motorcade would take from Dallas Love Field to the trademark was widely publicised. It's in all the local newspapers yeah. beforehand. Yeah, because they wanted people to go down and watch him go by, like some kind of royalty, right? Hmm. And that's really what he was doing. That's one of the great things about this whole thing is like, here is this man who is like the center of attention with his wife. It's just the ultimate drama, the ultimate tragedy. And we can't talk about this tragedy without bringing in the protagonist of it. Lee Harvey Oswald. What's his story? What's his background? Oh, wow. Well, this is why the conspiracy theorists go wild about this guy. Because when you look into his background, what has this guy been? I mean, he's like at an Air Force base in Japan, taught himself Russian, then went to Russia, was in Russia for a couple of years, married a Russian wife, and then suddenly comes back to America. And then he gets involved with anti-Castro people, but he starts a pro-Castro organization in New Orleans, crops up handing out leaflets in support of Fidel Castro on the streets of New Orleans, right. gets into fights with people on TV and radio about Castro and stuff. He even goes to Mexico City in September before the assassination in November, and he's trying to get a visa to visit Cuba, and he wants to meet Fidel Castro, and he's got something important to tell him, right? Right. Uh, he didn't get the visa, and he was really upset about it, and they threw him out of the uh, embassy in Mexico because he was causing a scene. Right? Yeah. I mean, you think about him through 
today's prism of understanding these attention-seeking, Kanye West comes to mind at the minute, people who will just kind of do anything and say anything just to make sure that the public eyes on them, or or maybe they're a little bit mentally unhinged. So uh, do you think that he actually had any political convictions, or he just was excited to be in the mix of, of drama? Well, you know, I mean, he is regarded as having been crazy by some of the people that knew him, right? But the Cuban security starts to investigate this guy, mm-hmm. right? So he had said that he was the president of the New Orleans chapter of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Well, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee is like a nationwide organization of leftists who who support the Cuban revolution in America, right? It has headquarters in various cities. So they contact the the head of this national organization and say, who's this guy that runs runs your New Orleans chapter, this guy, Lee Harvey Oswald? And they say, never heard of him. Don't know who he is. And it turns out like they had no connection with him. He kind of did this off his own bat, right? But the curious thing is the office on the leaflets that he was handing out is in the same building as the offices of these anti-Castro groups, (laughs) right? There's all kinds of things about his movements before the assassination, which which raised doubts about him. So one of the big incidents that is pointed to is called the Sylvia Odile incident. Have you heard about this? Uh-huh. Okay. Tell us more. So again, in late September, this is sometime probably after he's been in Mexico, right? Late September... There's these two girls. One of them is very young. She's only 17, Annie Odile, and her elder sister, Sylvia. These are two daughters of a Cuban revolutionary who turned against Castro and was imprisoned in Cuba. But the family escaped, and they were living in the United States. And there was quite a large Cuban exile community in Dallas. And they went to live in Dallas, right? One evening, Sylvia claims that There's a knock on the door. Her sister Annie answers the door, and there are three men standing there. Uh, Two of them are like Latin Cubans, and one of them is an American. They asked to come in because they are members of an organization that is against Castro, and they they wanted to make contact with her and, and get them to do things for them. They wanted her to translate. So she let them into the apartment, and they introduced this American guy as someone called Leon Oswald. Oh. And he didn't say anything during the conversation. And Sylvia said that she got rid of them because she she didn't trust Ah, them. There was something shifty. There was something about them she didn't trust, and she got rid of them, right? But then a few days later, she got a phone call from one of the Cuban guys. And he started to talk to her about the American. And he apparently told her that he was said that you Cubans are too soft and you should have killed Kennedy after the Bay of Pigs, and maybe I'll do it. That's what he kind of told her, you see. But when the assassination happened and they saw pictures of Oswald on the TV, these two sisters went, that's the guy. Right. She actually was a witness at the Warren Commission. And the Warren Commission, just to be clear, was the commission that was established to look into the assassination. Yeah. So she gave evidence to the Warren Commission on this, but they discounted her evidence because she had been diagnosed as having a mental illness and had been hospitalized. And they said these were just fantasies, right? But people have kind of interviewed her subsequently and stuff and found out that she actually mentioned this incident before the assassination to various people. Right. And she'd also written a letter to her father about this. Right. Before the assassination took place. So it seems pretty certain that it did actually happen, which actually points to the fact that Oswald was not kind of 
acting alone, in inverted commas. So let's set the scene here, Katie, on the day in question in Dallas. It is the 22nd of November, 1963. The motorcade is going through Dealey Plaza. There are three cars. JFK is in the second car. Also in the car, he's got two Secret Service agents. His wife, Jackie, is alongside him. He's got Governor John Connolly and John Connolly's wife, Nellie, is there. Take us through the story from that point, Stephen. I can kind of give you the sequence as it appears in the famous Zapruder movie. And who is Zapruder? Abraham Zapruder is a Russian Jewish emigre and he's a tailor and he's got a kind of garment business in Dallas and he loves Kennedy and he decides he's going to make a movie of the motorcade. In fact, he forgot and left his camera at home and he actually rushed home to get it and went down there, stood on a wall overlooking Dealey Plaza and as the car approached, he took this movie and of course in the there's only like 26 seconds of it or something like that but it's like in the opening sequence there's the the car moving along and Kennedy and his wife are waving like royalty to the crowds and everything looks great and then it goes behind a, like a, a road sign and then as the car emerges from behind the road sign it's obvious that Kennedy's been hit and at first he's kind of hit in somewhere that looks like the shoulder or the back of the shoulder, and then there's this blurt of bright sort of pink blood, because it's coda colour, right? And his head explodes, basically, and then oh. it's jarred backwards. Uh, and then there's this panic in the, in the car. Jackie climbs onto the back of the, the limousine, and the security agent is climbing into the back of the limousine, and, they, and that's the end of the movie. I could never bring myself to look at that, because it's just the, the graphicness of it, but how incredible that it exists. And as a document and an, an archive, and a way to try and figure out what actually happened. It's, yeah. it's uh, yeah. an essential artifact. Well, you see, the story of the movie, in some ways, is kind of part of the whole mystique of this event, right? The fact that it was filmed in such graphic detail. When they found out that this guy had taken this movie, lots of press people wanted it, and eventually Zapruder sold it to Life magazine for $150,000. And they had it, but they never showed it. It was shown to the Warren Commission, but the film was never shown. What Life did with it was they published still shots from the movie in the magazine. They reversed a couple of the frames at the moment of the impact, which made it appear like as if Kennedy fell forwards when he was hit. In fact, he fell backwards. The thing was that life said that that was an error, but that's added to the conspiracy because when the film emerged, and what happened was, you mentioned the 1992 film by Oliver Stone. Well, that's about Jim Garrison, who, who launched an investigation of his own into the affair. And Garrison was the one who got the Zapruder film, and he used the Zapruder film in the trial and showed it in the trial. A guy who, who was kind of like working on the movie to make it showable, right, made a copy. And he kept it. 
And uh, when he when he realized later, a few years later, that Time Life were not going to go after him for it, he started to allow people to see it. And they made something like 40 or 50 copies of it. And this movie then began to travel underground in the United States. And people were having like Zapruder parties. Well, it's like a snuff film, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, but you see, the point was that the movie shows this shot you're so used to seeing people being shot in the movies and they're hit from the front and they fly backwards well that's what happens to kennedy in the film so it proves that he was shot from the front or it appears to prove that he was okay. shot from the front right oswald was in the book depository which was behind kennedy so this is a red brick building how far away from the car is it passed ah it's quite a long way i think i'm not too sure i'm not certain exactly how far it was but one of the points about that was it was an amazing feat of marksmanship because it was a moving target so far away i remember that and he has bought by mail order a rifle which is allegedly the rifle that was used. Now, the thing was about this particular rifle, though, in the time he had, he could only fire three shots. So that was one of the other things that happened with the conspiracy was that they had to explain why there was this magic bullet that kind of hit Kennedy and then went through Connolly's body because it had to, you know, there had to be only three bullets because that's the only three that Oswald could have fired. You sound like a skeptic to me, Steve. I think there's too much evidence that points. I mean, and the other thing is, you've got to remember this, and this is one of the curious things about this whole thing. This idea that Oswald did it alone has persisted, even though in 1979, the House Committee found that it was probably a conspiracy. That was the official thing because they established beyond most people's doubt that there were four shots fired in Dealey Plaza that day, not three, because they unearthed also an acoustic recording of the motorcade and they had these top sound engineers figure it out and they said there were four rifle shots audible on the tape so if there were four shots there must have been another gunman and it just so happens that the other gunman would have been in front because witnesses on the day saw people with rifles on the so-called grassy knoll which was in front of the motorcade which is where directly where the shot appears to come from in the Zapruder movie. So it's not really a question of being skeptical. It's just a question of looking at these facts and saying, mm, the official story doesn't add up. Something else must have happened. Was he known as a good shot? He was supposed to be a, a marksman, yeah. After he's apparently done the deed, he goes down to the canteen in the book depository and gets a soda and sits down and starts drinking a soda. Wow, cool customer. Right, right. And then he goes home and he picks up a gun apparently at home and then he goes to the movie theater. But on the way, he kills an officer. Oh. He was arrested for killing Officer Tippett. It was only the next day that they charged him with killing Kennedy. In the meantime, of course, there's lots and lots of people that were in the book depository that kind of walk free. It's, it's not really that controversial to question this event that much, in my view, because I think there's so much evidence to point to a reasons to doubt the official story. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, Fire listeners. It's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. 
that's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factors delicious ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So last night I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon. It was absolutely delicious. These are no-fuss, no-mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Obviously, there's a very quickie DIY inauguration of Vice President Johnson to yes. be the president yes. on, on the airstrip. On the day. Yeah. And very quickly, what they do is they announce very quickly that there was no foreign involvement in this killing, right? Now, that was something that Castro pointed out because, uh, believe it or not, on the day of the assassination, there was a French journalist called Jean Daniel who was actually in Havana meeting Fidel Castro that morning and he had brought a message from Kennedy saying he wanted to make rapprochement with Castro. And he was telling Castro this when news came that Kennedy had been killed. Castro turned to Danielle and said, well, I think that's the end of your rapprochement. What then happened was Castro made this speech the day after and said, why was it necessary for them to say so immediately that the Russians or the Cubans were not involved? There's something mysterious about that. Why would they find it necessary to say that? Well, one of the things was because of Oswald's activities beforehand, what the Cubans concluded was that he was part of a conspiracy to blame the assassination 
on Castro. So that would give an excuse to invade Cuba again. So then they had to kind of say it had nothing to do with Castro or, or anything like that because they had to cover up Oswald's activities because it didn't happen the way it should have. What the Cuban security concluded was that Oswald was sent to the theatre and he was going to be killed there. The manager of the movie theatre recognised him and phoned the Dallas police and the Dallas police went and arrested him before the assassins that are assumed to have been arranged could get to him and kill him. So the whole thing got messed up. The whole the whole thing got really messed up. By this now. is where we need a whiteboard. On his way to being arraigned, something like 70 policemen surrounding him, mysteriously, a known mobster who actually pops up yeah. and shoots him. You know, how how did Ruby get to this, like, 10 feet away from, from Oswald with a gun and manage to shoot him? You know, it's just so bizarre. It sounds happened. a bit pat is what you're suggesting. It's too, it's too much of a coincidence or some strange kind of happening. How did that happen? It's just kind of like, I can't, for the life of me think that you wouldn't think that was really 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 suspicious <laughs> it's it's an iconic image that one the photograph of ruby shooting lee harvey oswald isn't it katie yeah. because the police chief is there in quite a pale suit so your eyes are initially drawn to him <laughs> yeah, that's and, right and jack ruby has not got the gun at full arm extension it's almost like he's just fired it from his hip the other iconic image katie which you've referenced is when lbj when linda johnson is being sworn in he was in the car behind Kennedy it is an incredibly sombre image but your eyes are drawn to Jackie Kennedy who is there right next to Lyndon Johnson who has his right arm up as he's swearing his oath she is still Katie in her pink Chanel suit which is splattered with the blood of her dead husband an awful awful image it's so dramatic and when you read about it a hot day in Texas and the the engines were off and then just as Johnson was being sworn in all four jet engines are, are gearing up and they're they're screaming so like over the noise of these screaming engines he's being sworn in there wasn't a Bible to hand. They just had a missile that was in uh, next to Kennedy's bed. I'm wondering what kind of insight, Steve, you can give us for um, what must have been going through Lyndon Johnson's mind because he was in the car behind the Kennedys. And, you know, next thing he knows, he's the president of the United States. I mean, he changes things. We understand that Kennedy was making orders to withdraw from Vietnam. And he just doubled down on Vietnam immediately afterwards. This is another one of the things, the strange things, is like the change of the presidency changed the whole tone. There are those that have suspected that he might have been involved. That's, I a, mean, that's, that's a conspiracy too far. That's stretchy, <laughs> isn't it? So how, first of all, Stephen, how does America find out? And secondly, how does America react? Well, it was on TV, right? This is a televised event, you know. It's like uh, Walter Cronkite. You know, he, he, he's the man who breaks down on TV and tells the American people that the president is dead and so on and so on. So they find out in real time. Transatlantic communication was possible by TV too. So in Britain, in Europe, we found out about it as well very, very quickly. Hence you know. the smashed teapot of Ex your mother. Hence the smashed teapot. That's right, yeah. And it strikes me, Steve, that it's almost like a harbinger of media disasterbation to come, you know, the, the bread and butter of social media. There's a, an image that struck me, other media coverage from the time, not just the Zapruder film, but this is right after the shooting and you see a family cowering 
on a grassy knoll and you see press photographers standing over them with their giant cameras photographing this family cowering with their baby. It seems like, wow, that's a very modern image. It's like, let's make hay while the sun shines. We can sell this picture and make ourselves a lot of money. We might get shot in the process, but it might be worth it. Kennedy was the first kind of real modern president in a way, which was was a kind of media creation. This is the Ur conspiracy theory. This cult that's grown around not just Kennedy and his legacy as a politician, as a statesman, but around the assassination. That's like a whole separate industry. Why does it excite so many people? So, I mean, I think you have to kind of, you know, take a historical view of the way in which this thing unfolded, right? The the Warren Commission kind of put a lid on it for a while, but it, it never kind of stuck. When Hoover died, you know, the boss of the FBI, who was actually on the commission, stuff started to come out that he'd actually suppressed evidence. So people began to doubt the Warren Commission report. But the Sapruda movie emerges at a really important time. You know, you've got Watergate, you've got Vietnam, protesters being killed at Kent State University and stuff like that. So there's a huge kind of soul-searching going on in America about how did it come to this? We've got a crook for a president and all of this kind of stuff. Yeah, and who do we trust anymore? Who do we trust anymore? And then the Zapruder movie starts to circulate and people see that, hey, you know, this guy's clearly shot from the front, not the back. There must have been another killer involved. That moment in Dealey Plaza was the moment that America lost its innocence. That's where it all all went wrong or st- started to go wrong right and that's kind of fixed itself in the in the psyche of of america that's the thing about it and that's why it kind of lingers and lingers and lingers it's also i think the number of players isn't it it's the number of plausible players in this assassination yeah, the it's number very busy. Of, it's very busy the number of people with motive yeah i mean you've mentioned the mafia you've mentioned uh cuba for and against Oh, the government itself. The CIA in particular. Yeah. You know, when Kennedy had the report written about what happened at the Bay of Pigs, it transpired that the CIA had lied to him. They'd promised him that there was gonna, it was going to be successful because the Cuban people were going to rise up and overthrow Castro as soon as it arrived. And, of course, that just didn't happen. And they knew, and he found out that they knew that that wouldn't happen. And so he was kind of lied to, and he said... When I get back, you know, in second term, I'm going to smash the CIA into a thousand pieces. So there were people in the CIA who had, you know, reason to fear a second term, right? And of course, the other circumstantial evidence which links the CIA to this is the fact that when they were ordered to kill Castro, the CIA recruited the mafia to do it. Mm. So they formed an association with the very people that have also been fingered as being possible people with motive and means, because the mafia certainly had the kinds of hitmen that could do the job. And of course, the mafia was involved with the Cuban mafia that had lost out big with the Cuban revolution. So they had motive because they wanted, really, to get the United States to invade Cuba and get rid of Castro so they could get their casinos and their hotels and all their business back. But what about the fact that, hey, we're here 60 years later from the assassination. You would have thought that loose lips sink ships and that the facts and figures would be out by now. How come we don't know? The other thing is, some of the the key witnesses have died under mysterious circumstances. That's a whole new strand of conspiracy. So there's loads and loads of these characters. I mean, one guy, 
the Cuban mafia guy, Santos Traficante, was about to give evidence to the House committee, oh. right? The day before he was due to give evidence, he's found dead. Right. Okay, so I didn't realize that, that maybe the loose lips were uh, sailing off. And meanwhile, Jack Ruby, who... Just yeah. to remind everyone, is the man who kills Lee Harvey Oswald. He dies in, what, 1967? Yeah, from a really, really aggressive form of cancer. Ruby, I think, was also on record as saying, I can't tell the story. I can't tell you. I can't say it. They'll, you know, they'll, you know. Oh, it's so tantalizing. It's, <laughs> a, it's absolute he, catnip. He was a bagman for the mafia, and he, he made trips to Havana to pick up money from the casinos and bring it back. To, to New Orleans and stuff. So he he was kind of like a very long-standing mafia capo. Yeah. The Cubans investigated this because, as it was called, the Church Commission or the House Committee that investigated in the 70s, actually w- went to Havana and asked Fidel Castro if he had any information. So Fidel Castro put his top man, a guy called Fabian Escalante, on looking into the files. And Escalante has written books about this. And he's convinced it was the Cuban mafia supplied the hitmen. And in fact, he's identified who they were. And one of them is a guy called Eladio del Valle. And Eladio del Valle was another witness that was kind of going to give evidence who was found dead at the same time as Santos Traficante was found dead. And who would have killed these people, do you think? Would have been the Cubans? Would have been CIA? Would have been... Who knows? I'm wondering if there's different factions of conspiracy theorists. Like, do you guys all fight each other in the parking lot? Well, the thing is, if you look at what the, the Cubans say, they say there could have been as many as three different conspiracies, right? or probably even more, but they were different conspiracies that were kind of layered. So one was, kill Kennedy and blame it on Castro. But the second one was, blame Oswald and blame it on Castro. That one went wrong. They had to cover up the reality by blaming Oswald entirely. So there was a conspiracy then to blame Oswald entirely for it. And then the third one was, every time somebody dregs up new information, covering it up. There is an industry which is determined to keep putting this, the solving of this crime back in the box, the original box that it was put in, which was Oswald acted alone. But the fact is he, he, he won't stay in the box. He keeps popping out again because somebody comes up with some other revelation at some point, right? And there is a ready market out there because, like I say, from the 19, mid-1970s, faith in American Democracy was shattered, you know, by Watergate and stuff. And incidentally, don't forget that on the tapes... In the Watergate tapes. In the Watergate tapes, Nixon said, don't go there because it'll just open up the Bay of Pigs and all of that stuff again, right? Now, the guys that he was referring to were the Watergate burglars. Boss of the team of the Watergate burglars was a guy called Frank Sturgis. Sturgis was involved with the groups that... Oswald is associated with. The anti-Castro groups, which may also be the pro-Castro groups, but that's just a <laughs> that's just a disguise. So, that's just yeah. a ruse in, in the same building. Because the rents were very attractively priced, so if you were <laughs> forming an organisation, you were instinctively drawn there. <laughs> Katie, how do you feel about the assassination and its effects on America? As someone who is American and, and grew up in America in the aftermath, did the Kennedy assassination cast a shadow Across America, I, as you I feel the initial reaction I have is that it absolutely deified John F. Kennedy. So there was that sense of him just being shot down in his prime, literally. But in terms of these conspiracies, that while they're very catnippy and entertaining, 
the more that Steve is laying them on me, the more I sort of feel like they all become equally implausible because they're so complicated. I mean, do you feel that there's there's one theory that rises above the others in terms of being the most plausible? Well, we start from the premise that Oswald most probably did not act alone. That was the finding of the commission in 1979. There were four shots, so there must have been another shooter. So that means there must have been a conspiracy. Now, from there, where do you go? How far would this conspiracy extend? So you point to the fact that Sturgis actually spread ideas around that Oswald was a pro-Castro militant. Okay. Okay. So, so he was... He he's was, muddying the waters. He was muddying the waters early on because there was a definite attempt to blame Castro for the killing. But it was very quickly muted by the Johnson administration. They put a lid on it. They okay. stopped it, right? Straight away. So you go from there, you know, you find out that Oswald, you look into Oswald's history... There's too much about that history, which is too suspicious, you know. And you feel like there's obviously he has an agenda or he's perhaps being used by some some he other group. He said so himself. He said, I'm just a patsy. So he's saying that he was just a, a hit man. He, and was, a, he so, was set up. Right. He's saying I was set up. I'm just a patsy. I'm going to take the blame for this. Right? So, so I guess what I'm coming away with is definitely, I think you've made a really strong case, Steve, for the fact that Oswald did not act alone. And much like the Malcolm X discussion that we had recently when he was assassinated, that seemed to be a perfect storm of forces who it was in their interest to get rid of him from the Nation of Islam to the FBI. So it seems like maybe there was kind of a, a group effort here, a little bit of a super group of assassins. The other, I think the other thing to mention as well is that this was a big deal but it's not the first time in history that an American president's been assassinated. In fact, four have been assassinated, right? And remember, Reagan himself was shot and mm. nearly died. Yeah. Right? That's a good point. But this one had all of this kind of... It was at a momentous point in history, middle of the Cold War as well. You know, those that romanticize Kennedy, you know, say that he was going to make big changes. And what do you think America would have looked like with Kennedy in a second term? At the same time as we've said all this, you've also got to remember that Kennedy's reputation was also trashed. All the stuff that came out about Kennedy's philandering, his womanizing, you know, the cocktail of drugs that he was on, you know, the way in which he's kind of like completely had this fake persona, his famous affair with Marilyn Monroe, all of that stuff. All of that came out after his death. If what people like Seymour Hersh wrote is true about Kennedy, then maybe his second term wouldn't have been that different from his first. Maybe he wouldn't have made any changes. The fact that he died, and we never know, means mm. that people can fantasize about what might have well, been. Well, he would have pulled out of Vietnam, sounds like. That is another point, which has also been kind of raked over. And there's a whole kind of school of history which says, oh, no, 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 that's not true. Kennedy wasn't going to pull out. That's just a myth that was cooked up by people who like Kennedy, who kind of want to, want to create a reason for why he was killed. You know, but that's not true. He was going to do exactly what Johnson did. That was a plan all along. And even people like Noam Chomsky say that. Even though it has been now kind of acknowledged that he did sign a memorandum 
which would have seen the 16,000 advisors that were in Vietnam at the time being pulled out by 1965. But you also have to remember that Kennedy oversaw even though he wasn't personally responsible. But during his presidency, there were two assassinations. There was one of Patrice Lumumba in the Congo. As with, covered in Belgians in the Congo. Episode, Belgians in the yeah. Congo. And there was Diem, the puppet president of South Vietnam. Hmm. Political assassinations were happening all over the place at this time. Katie, so much for us to think about. I think probably an awful lot that we're going to go and read about after this episode and yes. talk about. And I imagine our listeners will be doing exactly the same because... We've covered some facts, we've covered some speculation, and an awful lot in between. And Tom, I would just like to say that this is the rare episode of We Didn't Start the Fire, that thanks to all of the provocative rumors, speculation, and educated guesses offered by our esteemed guest, Dr. Steve Wilkinson, I'm even more confused <laughs> at the end than I was at the beginning. So thank you, Steve, I Th guess. Thank you. But the best line, of course, is from the song itself, JFK blown away. What else do I have to say? Hello. My name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Katie, my head's in a bit of a state. Uh, I you have your hands to your face I have, even I ha as you speak. I'm covering <laughs> my eyes with my palms to shield out uh, the bombardment of, of options. I'm always in favor of whatever the easiest scenario is, but in this case, there's no easy, easy choice. Why are the conspiracies so attractive? Like, why don't people want to believe the official version? There's two things. One is, as Steve put it, the official version just makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense. But I think the idea behind the catnip element of conspiracies is that people are increasingly cynical and 
there's such a wonderful idea of being a savior. Like if you're the person that can kind of crack the code. As the years go by, we're never going to get any closer to knowing. It's getting messier and messier. Yeah. Although we were just talking to Steve off mic and he was saying how increasingly more and more information is still coming out, is still being released. So Ian, that's time for your citizen journalist to uh, get busy. Well, if you would like another podcast to listen to as you try to to pick your way through this particular story, <laughs> I'm actually going to recommend that you go back and listen to our other JFK episode, which is simply called Kennedy, a little bit of light background listening for you, or have a look at our other episodes with Steve, which are Castro and Bay of Pigs. Oh, I love how excited he gets about all of this. He makes history seem like gossip. <laughs> he does. That's <laughs> a very good way of putting it. If you'd like to get in touch with a story or a guest idea, you can contact us on email at fireatcrowdnetwork.co.uk or on social media. We're at Spread That Fire on Instagram and Twitter. And make sure you check out our merch collection at spreadthatfire.com. Now, Katie, it is time for us to tie some tinsel around our foreheads and <laughs> to find ourselves <laughs> mistletoe because we're going to have a cheeky little Christmas break but we will be back soon with an episode about something which is in no way festive and that's birth control <laughs> Crowd Network A place where you belong Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.